Thank you, Matt. Very nicely done. Good morning, everybody. So I'm not a movie aficionado. The guy that was just up here, he is a movie guy. He knows movies. I like movies, okay? I primarily like sci-fi movies. That's just kind of my thing. That's what I was always interested in. And as a kid, I loved learning about special effects. Like what? I was 14 when Star Wars came out, and that was just amazing, mind-blowing to me. And I got so intrigued with how they do special effects and all the different ways in which they, you know, the various tricks that are employed to make a movie scene seem real. Uh, And the byproduct of that intrigue was that the magic of those scenes started to drain away for me a little bit. Uh, you know, I'd look at a scene and I'd start dissecting it, like, uh, you know, what part is a matte painting and are those buildings real or are they just fronts, uh, empty spaces behind them? Uh, or is this a model in forced perspective? All the different ways in which in those days effects were done. And that kept, and because I've always kind of kept my eye on those things, it still does sort of keep in the forefront of my mind as I watch a movie, the thought that this is not real. Nothing that's happening here is real. This was all fabricated for me, for my entertainment. And some of the wonder of movies kind of dissipate with that. Interestingly enough, I've had that same sort of thing happen when when it comes to the scriptures after spending a lifetime, the majority of my life, studying these scriptures intently. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had some treasured notion about the scriptures get ruined because I discover either it was a bad translation or the context didn't support the the previous understanding that I had of that passage and I had to rework it in my mind. But worst of all is when there's good evidence that some part of the text was added later and not part of the original manuscript, which we do have moments like those within the scriptures, and those are hard. Today, we're confronted with one such bit of text. We're coming back to our study in the Gospel of John, and if you've got a Bible or a Bible app with you, uh, if you'd like to go to John uh, chapter 8, please. Last week, we finished up chapter 7. We saw how the religious leaders were trying to arrest and capture Jesus. Uh, But in between those attempts, they came up empty-handed. In between those attempts, we had Jesus give this revelation of who he is, how he is the fulfillment of, of Israel's hope. He's the water of salvation that was prophesied about and promised. Today, we begin chapter 8. And if you're using a modern translation, you'll note that verses 1 through 11 have some sort of demarcation to indicate that scholars don't have confidence that this was part of the original manuscript of John. Uh, When I first encountered that critique, I got to tell you, I was devastated because this passage is like one of my favorite passages, uh, uh, stories about Jesus. The picture that it paints of Jesus is just so wonderful and so hopeful. It's the Jesus that I put my deepest trust in. And if it turned out that that wasn't real, like if this section was just an empty front of a building with nothing behind it or an effect for a camera, man, that's just that's just uncool. You know, I just I had a lot of sleepless nights when I first encountered that critique. And so it required some serious investigation on my part. And I'm not going to bog us down with all the details and technicalities of my reading on this subject. But I'm going to sum up my conclusions on a couple of things. And everybody's got to make their own conclusions uh, about these things. But first, A, 
I agree with modern scholars, and I don't believe that these 11 verses are part of John's original manuscript. The writing style is really different. It uses words that are foreign to John but occur in Luke. Uh, In fact, there are some manuscripts where this story is included in the Luke gospel. Uh, It's also a bit of a non sequitur because if you were to read through the end of chapter 7 and then pick up at verse 12 in chapter 8, the story just flows so much more neatly. It's, it's, you know, it's a natural progression that way. So I am largely convinced this story was inserted here. But I also believe, B, that this is a legitimate story that did happen in Jesus' ministry. I believe it was part of the oral traditions that were passed around before, you know, the later they were comp- compiled, the compilation that became the Gospels that we have and later canonized, I believe, It's a story that drifted without a home. And the reason I believe it's authentic is because of its antiquity. It goes as far back as Papias, the the church father who was taught directly by the surviving 12 apostles. So that takes us way back. He passed this story on to Eusebius, the later church father who was his student. That places this story all the way back into the first century. That's that's huge. That is powerfully persuasive to me. It, it carries all the characteristics of a first century account. It shows a deep familiarity with the customs and the laws of the time, as well as representing that tension between the law of Moses and Jesus' ministry that all the synoptics center around, the synoptic gospels center around. So why this story never found a home until sometime in the 4th century, that's another more complex issue. Um, it's one that, you know, you have to try to, you have to, try to figure it out. Uh, scholars are, are largely convinced that it had to do with patriarchal attitudes about keeping women properly and fearfully subjected to the men of society. Because the story is about a woman caught in adultery, and Jesus forgives her, without condemnation, and it it is a story that does not inspire fear. And that doesn't play well for people who are intent on maintaining control. Either way, here's the thing. I've committed to teaching through the Bible. That's one of those things that, you know, when Eastgate first started, that was my thing. We were going to teach through these these books a book at a time, not pull things out of context, but, but go through it. And so here's a passage that I don't think belongs in the text that we're studying, but I do consider it to be an authentic gospel story. So what do I do? Do I, do I skip it to preserve the natural flow of the text, or do I insert it here as an interlude and see what it is that we can learn from it? I've chosen the latter. Uh, I, I sort of consider God to be sovereignly in control of things and directing things, especially when it comes to this sacred text. And, and so I suspect that it was his intention to tuck this story here into John. And it does help to fit with some of the other things that have have been represented in in this gospel so far. So that's why we're going to... I'm giving you all of this because I want you to understand. This is why we're going to go ahead and study this, read this. I'm going to teach it with the same confidence and enthusiasm that I would with any other part of the scriptures because I do believe it is part of the scriptures. I just don't believe it necessarily belonged in this section here. That's my apologetic introduction. Now, let's get into this thing and and see what it is. So if you're there in John chapter 8, we're going to... Anybody got any questions about that just real quick? Because I'm not going to answer them. But (laughs) 
Starting with verse 1, John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Okay, this is a great dramatic setup for this vignette. It begins in the temple. Jesus is teaching but, but they obviously move outside of the temple courts. They would have to because the woman wouldn't be allowed in given the accusation that's come against her. The accusation is that she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, these leaders are making a legal claim about her. They, they have the evidence that the law requires to convict this woman of wrongdoing. What evidence do they need? Well, to keep suspicious husbands from accusing their wives unnecessarily or fabricating something to get out of a marriage, the law required strong testimony from two witnesses who saw the couple in a sexual context. And the two witnesses had to see this at the same place and the same time so that their testimonies would be identical to each other. Now, if you start thinking that through, it doesn't take much to realize that it is the, the likely way to gather that kind of information or evidence is to set a trap for the couple, to, to find them in this position. Now, now it's, it's probable that the woman in question here was betrothed to be married, an engaged woman. And the reason for that is the law in Deuteronomy 22 specifies stoning for an engaged woman who's unfaithful. That specification doesn't come for a married woman. But it also, and this is the interesting part, it also demands that her lover uh, be stoned as well, stoned, put to death as well. And so the big question is, right off the bat with this story is, where's the dude? dude? Exactly. Where, you know, where is he abiding in in this story? (laughs) It's clear that these leaders are, are picking on the easy target here. People, you know, people often imagine this woman as this bad character. Uh, you know, she's, she's stepping out on her man or she's enticing some married guy. But we really, really need to refrain from caricaturing her. Uh, I mean, think about this. She lives in a society where her father picks out who it is that she's going to be married to. She has no choice in the matter. And look, has anybody, have you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? You've seen it, surely. You're a movie dude. Yeah. You can imagine how she might have known a a young man uh, throughout the years. She was attracted to for years before uh, she'd been bargained away to somebody else. I mean, the the possibilities for this, this is the plot of countless romance novels. I mean, this is, she would be the hero in in those situations. This woman, we've got to realize, was not a monster. She was very real, very human, very vulnerable, especially now that she's been trapped by somebody else's purposes or for someone else's purposes. The fact that they're doing this publicly is another thing to consider. They put her in front of the crowd of people who've gathered there. Why didn't they pull Jesus to the side and say they got a situation here if they were concerned about this? 
Why did they, why did they do all of this so publicly? Well, the narrator explains it. This was the second part of the trap. They meant to trap Jesus in this. They're hoping to get him to say something that will impugn the law of Moses, disregard the law of Moses in some way, or he'll condemn her, allow her to be stoned, and then lose his appeal with the larger crowds. It's kind of one of those no-win situations they've tried to put him in. And so how does Jesus respond to all of this? He starts doodling in the dust, drawing some little things. Now, there's so much speculation about what it is that Jesus was writing or drawing or whatever, but there is no possible way of knowing that. That's, that's hidden information from us. And I don't really want to bog down giving all the various theories of what it might have been because by focusing on that missing detail, we miss the act itself, which was a dismissive gesture that Jesus was doing there. They come, they're all amped up for a big old fight and big thing happening. And what is Jesus? He just yawns and starts doing something else. And he's showing absolute contempt for their schemes. It's a bold move on Jesus's part. But this setup tells us all that we need to know about the mindset of the religious leaders at that time, their view of God and what they felt their purpose was in this life. They couldn't have cared less about this woman or her humiliation or the threat to her life. They didn't even care enough to bring the guy along in this whole thing, the man involved. All they wanted to do was use this situation as a means of diminishing Jesus and elevating themselves. And I wish I could say that this sort of behavior was isolated to religious leaders in that day and age, but tragically it is not. But what I think we learn from this, as we observe this scene, as we see their actions, I believe we abuse our faith when we use it to advance our own will. For the religious leaders, their faith, their heritage, their commitment to God's commands had all become props for them to use in taking Jesus down and lifting themselves up. They're not interested in this woman, her potential execution, what that would mean to her family, to her friends. All they wanted to do was attack Jesus, attack the one that they were opposed to. The religious leaders were steeped in their faith. These were not just, you know, this wasn't a a gang of ruffians running around. These were deeply faithful people in their own eyes, and yet they're portrayed as the most wicked characters in this story. And that is meant to serve as a warning to us. It's not a, it's not a story here so that we can look down on those guys and say, wow, how could they? This story is here to challenge us. In our world, dominated by social media, it is a very common occurrence to see theology used as a weapon and not as a source of hope and joy as it was presented to us. We routinely weaponize our faith, using it as a litmus test for division. It's, it's theological malpractice. Social media has become the breeding ground for this kind of behavior. People aren't dragged in front of a temple to be stoned to death anymore. But they sure can be vilified and canceled in a heartbeat. And it's the same mentality behind it. There may not be loss of life, but sometimes there is when you see how things play out in people's own experiences and how these things affect them. I'm dumbfounded. Uh, I am dumbfounded by the ugliness 
that is so freely employed online by those who claim Jesus as their model, as their savior. The ugliness with those they disagree with, sometimes the ugliness with those who agree with them but don't agree the same way. (laughs) From Piper's farewell, Rob Bell to MacArthur telling Beth Moore to go home. Those are the stones that we gather up and we throw at those that we feel superior to. And it's an abuse of our faith. It's an abuse of the gospel. And the American church right now is so steeped in this behavior and this mindset. I do worry that Jesus is doodling in the dust somewhere while all of our structures of church begin to collapse under the weight of our pride and our excess. I mean, who knows? I don't. I certainly don't. I just know that we've been given very good news, a promise of hope, a message of joy. And I think it's malpractice on our part if we use that message as a weapon to diminish somebody else. Of course, the question arises then, naturally, if we're thinking, the question arises, well, what about sin, though, Rob? Like, what does this mean that righteousness is irrelevant? That God doesn't care? That God doesn't care about sin? That anything goes, what we do doesn't matter? Well... So the rest of the story actually kind of reveals the answer to that. So let's keep reading. We get to verse 7. Remember, Jesus is drawing dust doodles. And verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. What a great picture. hope you're seeing it all in your mind as it plays out here. This is a famous line. Whoever is without sin is probably quoted as often as judge not uh, by people outside of the church. It's usually employed in a way that misses the point uh, of it. We usually pull this phrase as a way of saying, hey, leave me alone. We're all guilty of something, which isn't untrue. I mean, actually, Paul says something very similar in Romans 14. Why are you judging others when you yourselves do the same things? But it's not necessarily what's being communicated here in this passage. Jesus wasn't implying that a person has to be sinless in order to make a determination of if something's wrong or not, if something, you know, is immoral or not. It's possible that he's pointing to Deuteronomy 13.9, where the one who does the accusing is required to strike the first blow. And that, I believe, was there to, to, as a way of, quick, you know, of, of, of tempering quick accusations. Because if you know you're the one who's going to have to carry it out, you're not going to be quick to just run around and point fingers at everybody. But, but this response by Jesus is brilliant because Jesus doesn't dismiss the law of Moses or say that it's irrelevant. No, he's actually basically saying, if we're going to be serious uh, about promoting God's righteousness, you might find that you all have something you're guilty of in light of his righteousness. It's kind of like saying, if we're really going to do this, we're going to need more stones than more than just for her. And again, dismissively, Jesus goes back to his drawing. <laughs> I kind of imagine him sticking his tongue out. They get it. He, he drops the mic there. They get it right away. 
And you just imagine the silence there for a long time as Jesus is still drawing. And suddenly you hear thud, and then thud, thud. And then it sounds like a landslide as everybody is, is drifting away from this crowd. They got it. And it was compelling. Jesus didn't diminish God's righteousness. He didn't imply that sin was irrelevant. But he made the point loud and clear that a true concern for God's righteousness has its focus on our own hearts. It's just a reality that as God's people, we tend to lean into wanting to be the moral police. Not of ourselves, of everybody else, of you people. For, for the religious leaders, this was an unhidden agenda. They were the religious and moral police. That was actually their function within that society. And, and here they found a rabbi who they felt was bending the rules. And they found a woman who had broken the rules. And so they were waiting to see, will he bend one more? Will he break one as well? And so they used the situation to see if they could trap him. For them, God's righteousness revealed in Scripture was a spotlight that they used to expose other people's wrongdoings. But that's spiritual malpractice. We're never called to be the moral police. We never were. The Scriptures, even the law of Moses, weren't meant to become a standard by which we judge our neighbor. This story prompts an examination of our reflexes towards people who don't fit our religious or even our moral expectations. Are we the moral police? We may say, well, Rob, I've just got a deep, I've got a deep commitment to God's righteousness. Okay, that's good. But, but does that seem to lapse into a preoccupation with the details of other people's lives or choices? This story is meant to reveal that deep-rooted sin which would use God's word, his righteousness, as a means of judging someone else when its purpose is to shine a light in all of the dark recesses of our own hearts and bring that into harmony with who God is. It's very much like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, 3, and 4. Don't worry about the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own. How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get that speck out of your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? God's word is meant to be a mirror, a place where we see ourselves in light of God's goodness, in light of God's righteousness, in light of God's love. What do I see when I hold up this scripture? How am I? reflected back in that. And I'll tell you, if we commit to bearing our own hearts before God, we'll find, you know, our interest in judging others greatly reduces uh, along the way. I know that, I remember years ago, and this is long before Eastgate, it's actually back when I was still in the crazy church, but I, I was really upset with a fellow believer who's in the church with me because of some choices they were making. And and I was starting to think, you know what, it's time for me to go and start rebuking them, getting them straightened out. And then I thought, well, you know what, I actually haven't really prayed for them yet, so maybe I should do that first. And so I started to pray. And when I started to pray, something came to mind, interestingly enough, about 
something I had said to somebody else earlier that day. And I thought, oh, you know what, Lord, I, I want to get that right before you. I'm sorry I did that. And thinking about that suddenly reminded me of some other attitudes that I had that were very, you know, far less than righteous or godly. And, and so I, that led to more confession before the Lord. And before I knew it, I had spent the whole time praying about my own heart and, and all but forgotten what was going on with my friend. I, I still prayed for them. I, I still did, but... I think with a whole lot more compassion and love than I would have before. And compassion is the point of the story, right? That seems the whole point altogether because let's read the last bit here. Verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I was thinking about, that's where we're going to stop today. That's the end of the interlude. I was thinking about how many sermons that I've heard on this text that really focus in on that last line, go and sin no more. And it's almost a defensive kind of thing. Like, see, Jesus did tell her to go stop sinning. It's in there. But man, you know, there's a lot of steps that happen before we get to that line. And it seems like we want to do this story backwards. We have a tendency that way. Like we want to yell at the world around us, stop sinning. And we think that will incur God's favor and grace and compassion on people. But like I said, that's that's the reverse of this story. In this story, Jesus does so many protective things for her. For one thing, he doesn't join in with the condemnation. But I'm telling you, drawing on the ground while she got set in front of everybody was going to have the effect of drawing the attention away from her onto himself. He took it there. And then he shows her compassion and he pronounces grace. And then he tells her her life needs a new trajectory. And honestly, there's a lot to consider about Jesus commanding her to go and sin no more. I mean, is that possible? I mean, that's a, think about this. Matt and I were having a conversation. He was wondering about other possible interpretations of this. Obviously, you know, we we usually read this and interpret this to mean stop this adulterous affair, right? Which may be, which very well may be what he's saying there. That may be uh, the way we would read it. It's not what it says, but that may be the way to read it. But Jesus actually only uses this phrase one other time. Did you know that? There's only one other place where he says this. The man, we just read about it a few weeks ago. The man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. He was carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. And the, and the Pharisees rebuked him for breaking the Sabbath law. And, and so the context was actually the same. The, they're being bullied by the religious leaders just like this woman is being bullied. It could be that Jesus was warning both of them to be on guard because the religious leaders will use anyone or anything to get to him. It's sort of like saying, hey, you're on their radar now. Watch your step because they'll be watching. I mean, it's possible. We could say he was saying, go and sin no more and live a sinless life, except that James tells us that's impossible. He tells us, actually, if we say we are without with sin, we're actually sinning because we're lying at that moment. So it's just, it's an interesting thing. I don't know the, the right way to read that. I don't know which way would be the right way, but it's worth considering those things. Either way, as I said, there's a lot of grace that precedes his words about sin. 
And that, I think, is the takeaway we need to focus in on, an important revelation of God's character and his purpose for humanity. It's something that's so easy to lose sight of. But that is redemption, not punishment, is God's primary intent for the human race. I don't know why. Maybe I do. But it's so much easier to focus on and exciting to focus on punishment and consequence for wrongdoing. I mean, unless it's about me. It's really exciting if it's about you. But but it's certainly been a favorite theme for God's people throughout the ages. I mean ongoing. And yet all through the biblical narrative, as I've been reading it all these years from the very beginning, when things went wrong, the hope of redemption was always central to this revelation of who God is. The most famous verse in the New Testament, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But the very next verse, verse 17, is just as important as that one. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved, redeemed. God's interest is redemption all through The biblical narrative, God is shown to bend and twist in order to work with us in our sinful state, all for the purpose of redemption, not for the purpose of leaving us where we are or remaining static in a broken state, but to redeem, to redeem our lives now and forevermore. Jesus wrapped his kindness around this unnamed woman, and then he pointed her towards a new life. When we look at the world around us, we look at the society and the culture we live in, who do we see ourselves as? It's an important question. The religious leaders, is that who we are? The ones who expose and condemn sin as though they're above it? Or as Jesus, who seeks redemption through compassion and kindness, no matter what condition? A person is found in. There's a lot of ways to approach this story. This is the way I approached it. Uh, this story's got a lot of lessons to teach. It would do us well to read it and reread it. But I think the greatest challenge of this story is the question that emerges from this Who do I want to be in this world? How can I be more like my Savior when navigating? this corrupted world that I live in. Let's aspire to be agents of compassion, agents of grace that's fitting for people who follow Jesus. And let's see how that can be transformative and redemptive in the lives of the people around us. Maybe instead of a finger of accusation, maybe the friendly hands of love and grace Let's be instruments of His grace in this broken world. Who knows what it can accomplish? Right on? All right, very cool. If you are able, will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I especially appreciate this story. I thank you, Lord, that it didn't get lost or or hidden away somewhere, swept away under some other rug. I pray, Father, that the reality of what this story is teaching, the truth that's behind it, 
has its place in our heart. Father, as we always do, we presented ourselves before your word. Now we ask you by your spirit to shape our lives by that very same word. By your spirit, Lord, redeem us. Redeem the way we interact with one another. Redeem our place in this world to be beacons of hope and points of light and harbingers of grace. We pray these things, Father, for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.